0: You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent, yet often overlooked, investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series.
1: Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Mark Resipzinski and I, Niels Kostrup Larsen, where each week, We take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. For those of you who are regular listeners, our conversations are intended to motivate and inspire you to continue your rules-based investing journey. And for those of you who are newer to the show, we hope that today's episode will trigger your appetite to learn more by diving into the back catalog and listen to all of the past episodes that you may have missed, like last week's episode with Jerry Parker, where Jerry who keeps surprising me, despite that I've known him for more than 30 years. He shared some really interesting lessons regarding trade level, actually, that he was taught back in the Turtle days. So it really is a must-listen episode if you missed that one. Mark, it's great to be back with you. How are you doing? What's going on where you are?
2: Great. It's good to uh, good to talk with you again. It's uh, snowing out here in uh, in Concord. But as we talked about it, as I said, it's we feel as though spring is in the air. It's coming. It, we had a little bit of a warm spell last week, so uh, I'm looking forward to it.
1: Yeah, same here in Switzerland. We had a really nice warm spell uh, this week. Today is not such a nice day, so it's a great day for doing podcasting, but <laughs> it was a really nice week. I'm not sure we can say the same thing about the markets in the last week of February. They proved to be way more challenging than one could have expected given the first few weeks of the month. The biggest news of the week was the abysmal seven-year Treasury auction. On the news, the entire Treasury market went through kind of a mini-flash crash as the auction cleared more than four basis points from where it was trading at the auction time. The theme of the week really was Chairman Powell's ultra dovish presentation to Congress. Both days of the presentation, the S&P reversed big intraday drops on his testimony And the street was whispering that he may suggest the possibility of curve flattening, but instead his message was that the Fed will look past any transient inflation and continue to buy bonds for the foreseeable future. He also failed to address issues in the money market. The whisper with regard to that is that the Fed would raise the interest rate on overnight reserves, the IOER, left at the Fed, but they would communicate that as a technical thing and not as a rate hike. Unfortunately, he missed the opportunity for that. The increase in the U.S. 10-year treasury yields on February 25th, was it, was among the largest moves since year 2000, top one percentile. And it reminds us of the inconvenient truth, namely that bonds and stock prices can decline at the same time. To me, Events like this suggest that interest rates are a good proxy for confidence in the Fed, in fixed income managers in general and in the credit community more broadly. And so I think it's fair to say that confidence in the Fed will remain so long as interest rates are managed in this lower range. But when they start to break out of this range, the system is inherently very fragile and we could see 1980 in reverse because we are as overconfident today as we were underconfident 40 years ago. But I want to bring in you, Mark, and touch on some of the bigger things that have caught your attention from a market perspective before we dig into our usual trend-following updates and and topics. Just got a bullet point, 30,000 feet, the last month or so, Mark. Anything that stood out to you?
2: Well, I think your point on the Fed is, is really important. And uh, the, the, the theme that often I come back to is that the bond vigilantes are back. <laughs> so so I, you can have that image of cowboys on the plane. They're, they're a posse coming down there and they're riding their horses. But the vigilantes are back. And I think that that's, that's one major theme. There's also the theme, which uh, we could talk out a little bit, is, is that I use the word to describe markets often as VUCA. And that's the acronym used by the U.S. Army, which they call Volatility, Uncertainty, Complexity, and Ambiguity. And, mm. and we're hitting all of them right now. Yeah. So, and that's in commodity markets. It's in uh, equity markets. It's in credit markets. And and I think that that's, that's the overall theme, is is that there's a lot of uncertainty because we really are on the cusp of where we're going to go, either for rates higher or whether they're going to stay where they're at, whether the market is overvalued. So there's major themes and turning points that we're going to see play out this spring.
1: We have so many great topics, not least thanks to you. So, um, so I think people are in for a treat today. And do remind me of VUCA, because I know there's some other... Acronyms coming up in the uh, that I need to learn to pronounce. <laughs> so uh, yeah, on our side, from a performance point of view, our trend following strategy had a good month in February, in line with my own trend barometer, which suggested a good month for trend followers. Not an outstanding month, but a good solid month. But of course, the shift in the trend environment during the last couple of days of the month did trim returns somewhat as most markets in the portfolio reverse course following the Fed's comments. In terms of sector performance, what we saw was really positive contributions from energy, soft grains, metals, equities, and volatility. Currencies and meats were pretty flat. And then the loser was really fixed income uh, for the month of February. And although the performance was pretty broad-based, I would say that soybean oil and copper were really the top performers on our side. In our volatility strategy we also had a challenging period for the last week but despite the steep you know steepening vix term structure where shorter dated vix futures decreased and longer dated vix futures declined less or even increased in the first half of the month and it also managed to hold on to most of the gains uh, from the first few weeks and it resulted in a pretty solid gain for the month on the volatility side. Now, for my own trend following model portfolio, where I can go into much more detail, February was, well, let me start by the last week. The last week, it was down about 1%, so not too bad. And it leaves it up 7.13% for the month of February and 5.38% year to date. The performance during the month was really coming from the Group 2 models, so the quote-unquote discretionary type models, up 4.5%, and then Group 1 classical trend models added another 2.5%, and the fast-reacting Group 3 models were flat in February. In terms of sector attribution, uh, we really saw base metals doing the best, followed by energies and precious metals, but bonds and softs were pretty close, I have to say. And the worst sectors were in equities and short-term interest rates. And they were also the only losing sectors in February. And when we drill down to the single markets, copper, uh, US 10-year notes, probably surprised a lot of people that the US 10-year note were one of the best performing markets. But that is where these shorter-term, fast-reacting, kind of plunge protection type models got in and and got it right. Uh, They went short mid-February from memory. And so that certainly helped. Also, Nikkei did well, rounding off the top three markets. And then at the bottom, we saw DAX, German Bunds, and Zinc. And in terms of the trading for the last week, the system started the week getting out of some long Mexican peso. It got long Zinc. Then it got out of all of its long NASDAQ positions and went long soybeans and cocoa. It also went long the euro, and short the German Bund, and it also got out of the euro-dollar positions it had, which is not the currency, but the 3 months interest rates in this case. And it finished the week by getting out of some long Aussie dollar, it got out of all of its cotton, all of its Swiss market index, and then it trimmed some long copper and Nikkei positions, and also went short the German bubble. (laughs) And in terms of risk to stop, which is something that I monitor, it actually closed the week down. Uh, sorry, not down. It closed the week at nine point zero two percent, meaning if all the positions got stopped out tomorrow, it would lose nine percent. That is down from the week before, where it closed at, where it finished at thirteen point eight seven. So in this case, it's probably prices getting closer to the stops, not so much stops getting closer to the prices, given the last couple of days reversals. All in all, the system had 23 trades for the whole week. Now, before we move on to some questions that came in from Playman, I think we need to dive into the events of this week. And you shared some great talking points with me, and I would love to try and tackle them one by one. So what people may not know is that I don't really know where we're going to go with these topics. I just know what the topics are. So um, so I will be very interested in that. Now, in terms of market-sensitive issues that we have seen, we have a kind of four points that we want to touch on. The first one maybe is the uh, commodity super cycle, which we've talked about before. But, but do you think there may be some, some new things that we need to just touch on as well uh, this week?
2: Right, well, talking about the super cycle, I think that there's been a lot of discussion, and I think the important part that that investors should know is that it's very hard to measure a super cycle except after the fact. so right. so so you could sort of people could talk about a super cycle, but it's only until after we have enough data can we sort of said that these long, long cycles occur. So it's more of a historic instance. What is most important is what's happening to inventories. We see that inventories in oil have fallen significantly. I did some work on looking at uh, the USDA information on stocks to usage for the grain markets. In particular, is, is that for the last three years, the stocks usage for soybeans has fallen 90 plus percent. It's been 30 percent for corn. And so what it means is that if there's less buffer stock, because inventories have, have fallen all of those markets become more sensitive to any new shock that occurs. Mm -hmm. There's no buffer or excess to smooth out prices. So from an investment perspective and from how you look at this is that you should expect more volatility because that inventory has gone down, there's less buffer stock, and because of that, there can be greater dislocations. We've already seen it in soybeans, we've seen it in corn, but at the same time, we now got the new report from the USDA about what's going to plant. You're going to see more plantings uh, than ever before this uh, this spring. So that reminds us of the old adage that always applies to commodities that may not apply to other markets, is that the solution to low prices is low prices. The solution to high prices is high prices. So I think that people should realize that the very least is that – We're going to have more volatility, only because if inventories are less, markets are going to become backwardated, which we see for the grain markets and and oil now. And that means is that you think that there's a trend, you could see some strong trends. You could also see some strong reversals if new information comes in.
1: Yeah, no, I fully. Agree with that, and actually, I can't remember, but a little while ago, I was looking at a very long-term chart of uh, something like soybeans, and actually, it's a pretty um, repeatable uh, process in terms of huge runs up and then these massive runs down, and it kind of exactly describes what you what you're saying. So I think that's quite interesting. Now, in terms of constraints, and I know I'm going to even we're just. Five minutes into the conversation, I'm going to deviate completely from what we had planned for a little while, but bear with me. I couldn't help. I was listening to a a podcast episode where an ex-military guy, ex-US military guy who was definitely very well read on, on, on economic stuff as well, where he was just describing how people might think that trade today, when China needs soybeans from Brazil or wherever it might be, that trade today just runs seemingly. It gets loaded on a boat, it just sails across the water, and there we go. But he said people wouldn't believe how much that depends on the military of some sort, whether it's the US or other military ships, being present to secure that those ships are are basically not taken over by pirates and other things. And I know this deviates completely from what (laughs) we normally talk about, but given there is a new administration, given that Biden this month uh, or this week actually showed his first, at least that's how it's described on television over here, he showed his first intentions about the Middle East by some strikes and stuff like that. But really very much dependent on what role the U.S. chooses to play in the world in terms of dominance on the sea and military impact, that could have huge impact on trade as we know it and the ability for countries that need certain commodities, such as soybeans and what have you, to keep those in a normal process in terms of logistics. And, of course, that can have huge impacts on Price as well, if it if it runs smoothly or if it doesn't run smoothly, so to speak. So, I know this is a little bit outside our normal topics, but but I do think there's a lot more going on in commodities and trade that we may not have been able to, or we may not have had to concern ourselves. That's what I was trying to say. uh, Concern ourselves about in the past.
2: And I think that succinctly, I think the the issue that you find with commodities. Is its level of physicality, is, is that commodities is about logistics. It's about moving from one location to where the, where things are grown, they're mined, to other places where the demand is, where, where where people need it. And you and you see that the world trade has been dominated by the logistics of commodities as different economies move through different cycles. Is that if you look at shipping? Uh, if you go to the '70s and '80s, oil ship, uh, shipments from the Middle East all came to the United States. It was uh, the movement was to the U.S. and to Europe, and so all the ships flowed that way out. We'll say west. Yeah. Now all the ships flow east. When you look at uh, commodities for grains, you saw that there was fl- a flow to east. Now all the flow is west. And so the the flow of goods then de- it, it determines logistics. And when the logistics fall apart, then you're going to have dislocations and then you're going to have big price moves. And we could take it from not a geopolitical, but from a very micro level, is that look at natural gas in the United States, you know, when the uh, uh, they had the, the, we'll call it the Texas freeze. This is that there was a problem is that because the, power to the pipelines was cut off because they were run by solar and wind then you couldn't move oil and natural gas through pipelines to power generators so that you had a further dislocation when you find out as if there's a really big freeze in in the mississippi river getting grain barge uh, barges down the mississippi river is going to be more difficult if we ever had a major disruption in uh, in the sea lanes to China, then there would be a major disruption to their economy. And I think that when you think about from a very strong geopolitical sense, and they talk about the South China Sea issues, is that it's just a matter of, can China maintain its trade lines from the Middle East and from other parts of the world through the South China Sea? And when you think about Korea and Japan, They have to send ships through the same area. So in some sense, they want to have a free trade lines or or maritime lines because, again, it's an issue of logistics.
1: Yeah and you have the same issue actually the other way around I mean for sure China is incredibly dependent on on on, on resources and and energy and all that but if we're going to have this green revolution for example at least at the moment the US is incredibly dependent on what they can get from is it China or Taiwan but there are certain things they need for their semiconductors or from the in order to develop this battery technology etc cetera, etc cetera. so there are definitely some some big implications coming, I think, for for markets, but in in maybe from an um, unusual side or source. But again, I think the beauty of all of this is that it'll be reflected in price, and that's how we will capture it, not having to try and second guess what these changes will be. But uh, I agree with you, commodities are going to be interesting to uh, to watch
2: and that's something that we often don't focus in on it's is that uh, i think most investors and most traders in this focus in on the, those that have futures markets because obviously it's easy to get prices we could trade those when you look at some broader based uh, let's say a crb uh index of of commodities many of which are not traded those have gone through some extreme much stronger up moves So, for example, lithium, uh, which is needed for the batteries. Uh, You can sort of see there are other metals that are often used uh, in uh, different processes that don't have futures markets, aren't traded on the LME. Those have had some significant moves, and it's a more opaque market, but they're having big moves.
1: Yeah, which actually ties in quite nicely with just a topic generally in our industry, and maybe we'll cover that in, in another episode, but that's just the influence and the inroads of alternative markets into the CTA space. I mean, we know a lot of our friends and peers in our industry have really adapted some non-standardized futures markets that put them that's called them that, which which of course probably have helped performance. Certainly, I think last year it would have helped performance trading those markets. It's not to say that if everybody rushes in that they're so alternative anymore, but. But there is definitely a, uh, something going on on that side.
2: That's actually an area for interesting topics, because if we go back over to 2007 and 8, when we've had the, the big financial crash, a lot of problems with many of the large commodity trading firms that were, let's say, the, the big trading houses, they ran out of the ability to trade futures. And so they started to trade private equity venture cap. They tried to make more obscure commodities. And then when, uh, when people asked for their money back for because they wanted to have liquidity, then gates were put up because they couldn't unload a lot of the investments they had. So they were in commodity investments, but we were, they were in so, so many different types that they couldn't liquefy. In a way that could actually get the money back to investors so that's always an ongoing problem as you reach down into less liquid markets can you be able to meet the needs of investors when they ask for redemption and ask for their money back
1: Speaking of less liquid markets, you wrote a little note saying GameStop again. What's going on, Mark?
2: Well, I thought that this was going to be relegated to the bin of financial history. This is that we, we had some talks that this was done. But, you know, lo and behold, we had a big spike in GameStop, albeit not, nothing like what we saw in January, again in February. So, uh, and, and the reason why I sort of still focus in on this, even though it's such a, a small part of the markets, is that. Micro behavior can give us indications of macro risks. So, in some senses, is that th- these some markets are a microcosm of what we might see in broader markets at some point in the future. And and in particular, what scares you is is that if you look at. You know, GameStop. Is it you look at what's been happening to an investor base? is it. So I, I I pulled up some interesting data and it looked at the number of online accounts that uh, that were opened in the first quarter of twenty nineteen versus the first quarter of twenty twenty. That's the latest number I had. Those increased from seven hundred and fifty thousand to one point five million. Okay. Wow. You look at the margin is at all time highs in the stock market. You look at the amount of small premiums, so let's say the premium associate calls, it's like one or two or a couple uh, contracts, it's gone from inside of $3 billion to $30 billion right now, which you sort of said that's all retail. So you're seeing this is that a new form of investor comes in, and we don't know exactly how they're going to behave. Now, the amount of capital they have maybe relatively small versus large institutions. But still, we have to recognize that they're having an impact because we see it in GameStop. And I think that this led to sort of an interesting uh, a piece of research I did that uh, I posted on my blog, which is on the irrationality of uh, of investors on tickers. Mm-hmm. So what you find out is, this, is that, well, what do you think the ticker for Zoom video communications, that's the... You know, that's what we think is, the, uh, is what we use for, uh, you know, all of our conference calls. Well, it's not Z-O-O-M. There's another company called Zoom Technologies that has nothing to do with video communications. So when everybody thought started to get on Zoom, lo and behold, Zoom Technologies actually had a huge run-up in price, and it was the wrong company. And this is simple, a similar thing happened with uh, Elon Musk. He talked about, well, you could, instead of using Facebook, you use Signal. Well, there's a biotech firm with this symbol SGNL. So like, just like Signal. And so lo and behold, it had a huge run up as soon as Elon Musk talked about this. So I went back and said like, well, this must just be because of craziness right now in the market that this probably couldn't have happened back in history. So we know that we probably were much more rational in the past. And when when we could sort of say the the adults were running the markets, this never happened. So I found a piece of research that was done by some professors at uh, at Rutgers University. And lo and behold, they they looked and compared all of the stocks where the symbols were just, you know, very similar, maybe one letter reversed or that name was close, but it had a different symbol. And then they looked for the larger cap stock. Uh, they said, they "Said well, what happens if they had a shock? You know, say a news announcement. What happened to the less liquid stock that had a similar name? You know, they find out that there is a strong correlate when those shocks occur, that people were constantly making mistakes, mm-hmm. where they were sort of you know, hitting the button and choosing the wrong stock to even make their investment in. And so... Uh, so that that would that would tell you the amount of uh of craziness and so uh i have a doctor friend too who who sort of said like oh you know he's near retirement he goes i've been uh, playing the market now i'm getting really getting involved in here and he said to it, but I said i made a mistake he said instead of doing 400 shares i did 4,000 shares of the stock and they said like well he said I realized the mistake because I found out I didn't have cash left in my account, so I reversed the trade, but I made money. So, so, he, so he's actually quite proud of telling me about this. But the idea is, is that that we expect that markets would will become more rational over time because as we mature ourselves, we think that the market itself will also mature and not make the same mistakes. In reality, that's not true. So what we're seeing is is that mistakes that were done years ago will be repeated again.
1: Which is, of course, uh, human behavior 101, so to speak, which is also why we do what we do. But maybe we can hope that uh, someone like an Elon Musk would drop the ticker CTA or trend, and maybe <laughs> that will make people rush into what we do. Like we kind of need that, I think, at the moment. Where do you want to go now? We can talk a little bit more about You had something called the "good news is bad news" trap. You
2: know, I think that this uh, this ties into uh, another variation uh, of you know what we're talking about with the Fed. When you think about it, is is that we had really good news on durable goods this week. We actually had some good news on uh, unemployment claims, and the market sells off. So we're in one of these periods of time when good economic news is bad for the market. Because it sort of said that, well, then we're not going to get the same level of stimulus. So this is where you sort of say, like, what is the factor that drives markets and the weighting of factors changes through time? And and I think that this this is one of the classic problems that we're sort of seeing in in market analysis forever is the fact that we don't know what are the drivers that will cause. Markets to move at any given time. What was the driver last year may not be the driver this year. And in particular, that this is what we're sort of seeing with the whole discussion about, you know, the Fed. Because if growth actually is stronger, if we're actually doing better around the world, well, then we may not need as much fiscal stimulus. That would be bad for the stock market. So, so good news is bad news if we see that the that the economy is doing better, well, then we're going to get closer to full employment. Then lo and behold, we might have to raise rates sooner than what was expected. The doom and gloom may not be as bad. Again, good news is bad news. And this is what we're sort of seeing in the marketplace. And this is adding a lot of confusion. So when we talked about the bond vigilantes i think the bond vigilantes are what what they're really sort of saying is is that the forward guidance that we're currently receiving from the fed is very clear that they're going to allow rates to go uh their inflation to run hotter but at the same time it's it is also not very informative because we don't really know what is a hot rate we don't really know exactly when that will come, and we don't know what is the trade-off between growth and inflation these days. So, it's a bad word to discuss. But we're actually talking about the Phillips curve trade-off once again. Okay, because you talked to some Fed officials; they said the true unemployment rate is above ten percent. The others you're looking at, it's 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 in the six-ish range, and. At times, we have thought that 6% unemployment was full employment. So if like, we're getting close and if we sort of say we everyone gets vaccinated in the United States and we go back to full employment quickly because many of the people are not working are in industries or businesses that have been closed, is that we could see the unemployment go down significantly very quickly. And then it's going to be a tough uh, labor market. And you could then see inflation go higher. So... Again, it's the whole issue of good news can be bad news for markets.
1: Yeah, and it's not even, in my view, it's not even, you know, whether interest rates are at one level or another level and how it changes. It's actually kind of also with the speed of how these changes occur. I'm just looking at a chart here. And if you look at some of the larger periods in terms of rising interest rates and you look at the percentage change from where they were to where they went, You've had in the last thirty years or so, you've had a couple where they went up, relatively speaking, by fifty percent. So, for example, from two to three percent, or from you know six to nine percent, you know, a fifty percent increase in rates. Then we go back to two thousand and nine. We actually saw interest rates go up by ninety-two percent from its low to where it peaked out. We had in two thousand and not before the last uh, in- increase, we had another kind of 80% increase. I was just had to check the chart. But then this one that we've just had is already at 135% relative increase from the low to the most recent high. That is the, quick, the biggest percentage change in this interest rate cycle over the last 40 years. And I do think these things are important to note. So uh, that's another thing to keep an eye well, on. Well,
2: we're we're seeing it with the volume, even in short-term rate products, euro dollars. you are seeing it in in the bond volume. There's a lot of uncertainty that's that's going on around here. Now, there are two issues here that are the most important to, to focus in. On. So, so I, and not abstracting from the big move is is that one can uh, from a, from the audience of trend followers, CTAs. Can the trend followers make money when rates are rising? This has been the, one of the key issues that have always faced trend followers. This is that that they do very well when rates are coming uh, coming down and then they're bond bulls because bond bear markets are much more violent, much more volatile. Are the trend followers going to make money in a rising rate environment? And And generally it's been a, We'll say it's tougher because they've been short they've been more arrested development and so the question comes in can they make money this time the broader question which for all of investors have to face is is, is that what is going to happen to the stock bond correlation because in some senses that if the that you can be uh, we'll sort of say that poor man's diversification has been a negative correlation between stocks and bonds you can cheat on your portfolio because I could just hold bonds, and if the correlation is negative and rates are a little bit higher, is it? I got to make money on my on my bond portfolio? In fact, you know, you could sort of say for a lot of people, say I don't have to go out and buy trend followers. I don't have to buy managed futures. I don't need uh, crisis alpha or anything else you talk about because I've got a bond portfolio, and as long as that correlation is negative, you know, I've got protection. Now the so the big question comes in is is that if we move into twenty twenty one and the stock bond correlation now goes positive, what do you do to your portfolio? What do you do to sort of find other strategies that are gonna give you the protection you got cheaply by buying bonds?
1: Well, wow. I mean that is a huge question and I have been writing about it to my Clients. I, we've talked about it many times on the podcast. I think it is one of the biggest uh, issues that investors face because we've been so used to this perfect match between stocks and bonds, really. Now, on a anecdotal point of view, I can say that uh, at DON, we're one of very few managers who've actually traded back when interest rates were going up. And I have to say, if I'm really transparent about this, It has come from certain shorter term managers, I would say, that it was going to be tougher for trend followers, longer term trend followers to make money in a rising interest rate environment. But all I can say is when I look at our own track record from back in the 70s, especially from 76 through to 81, returns were very strong. And keep in mind, higher interest rates, it may be that we are not making money from the bond sector. But we may make money from all a lot, a lot of the other sectors in the portfolio. And that's, of course, why we diversify in the first place. So I would just be careful making too many predictions about these things. It's just um, too hard and too uncertain that the point is with trend following, we're trying to have a strategy that adapts over time to how prices move. And it's never going to be perfect. But I think over time, it's proven, at least all the evidence suggests that it can find ways of making money over time
2: well but but the point that you made that i think is important to focus in on this is, is that there have been a lot of large ctas that have focused in on just stocks and bonds okay sure. and those that have been large and have focused just on the financial sector are going to have a more difficult environment if the correlation is positive those that have uh, more diversified portfolios will be able to do better for the simple reason is, is that, okay, maybe you might have a harder time making money in a violent, bearish bond market. But at the same time, which we've just discussed, commodity markets are going to be sort of, let's say we're going to have the halcyon days of commodities. You're going to be yeah. trading much more commodities and you're going to be loving it in, uh, and it's it's going to be a completely different world. That's something we haven't seen for a while. And 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 so we see that the large people are going or the people who are diversified can rotate through all of this.
1: Yeah, and, and I will say from, from our experience, certainly commodities hasn't been that uh, helpful in the last 10 years in terms of attribution of the portfolio, but that's something we're happy to live with. Returns overall have been fine, but we know that in the long run, they are very useful. And actually, what I also think is true to say, is that commodities as a sector overall have been the most consistent sector in providing the best offset during these equity crises. And we've been through, on our side, I mean, certainly 87, and then we've had the um, tech bubble, we had the housing bubble, we had last year, and all of those times, actually performance was pretty strong, although last year was not really a crisis as such, it was a mini crisis, let's call it that, in terms of length. And and we we know that when it comes to shorter duration type crisis, you can't really say for sure if trend following is going to be a good investment or not, because it really depends on how you're positioned in equities before the crisis starts. But still, I think most managers and, and CTAs have done well during those Periods, and, and we can certainly see on our side that, that part of that and the and an important part of that is the diversification. So I completely agree with you that that's another thing that I think is underappreciated by many investors, even if they are invested in trend following, that is the importance of diversification and having the courage to have a large exposure to commodities. And I actually was... I was confronted a couple of years ago, maybe it was, I don't think it was last year, a couple of years ago, one of my clients had concerns because they felt, or at least their investors, underlying investors felt that, oh, we have this large exposure to commodities that must be more risky than trading financials. But they keep forgetting that we position size, you know, inversely in terms of volatility. So we're never taking more risk in a commodity position than we are in a financials position. You could even say probably the reverse because volatility generally is high in commodities. So so our position size in terms of nominal contracts are relatively low. But if you have a low volatile market like bonds could be or short-term interest rates and you don't know how to appropriately account for that in your volatility input in your model, you can inadvertently end up with huge positions in those markets, which can hurt you as much as they can help you, but it can certainly hurt you if we see something like we've just seen, where suddenly the quote-unquote sell-off is much more focused on bonds than it is on equities, at least for now.
2: The interesting thing to unpack from some of your comments there is the fact that you haven't tra- uh, traded as well commodities over the last 10 years. It's been a bear market for commodities. And now we expect that if it's a bear market for bonds, it should be a good market for commodities. And I think that a lot of evidence would sort of agree with this. It's much harder to trade markets from uh, on a short position side, whether it's commodities, bonds, equities, all of those seem that there, there is a long bias across most markets. And trading from the short side is much more difficult. So even from a factor basis. So so there was actually some good work that was done from Robico Bank, where they were looking at uh factor analysis. And they said, and so most of the factor analysis, when you look at momentum, long growth uh, or value, is that you buy, uh, you know, your top companies and then you sell short to the bottom. So you, you sort of rank order, you know, on size, you rank order on value, and then you do this long, short portfolio. So you get a market neutral portfolio. And then you said, well, let's let's just unpack this instead of say, let's get up, let's get rid of all the shorts, let's just look at the long positions. And generally, this is that if you look at all those factor analysis, and you sort of say, where are you underperforming? It's always on the short side. So so shorting markets in general, regardless of it's in the futures, or if it's in, in, in cash equities, is always much more difficult to make money on than from the long side.
1: Well, I think certain hedge funds have certainly found out this year that shorting can be quite painful. <laughs> I want to actually stay on this topic for just a second. Because this is interesting, and I know you and I have not discussed this, but I have brought it up previously in the podcast. But it's always something that is, I think, fascinating. So, in my past, when we ran simulations of actually the trend following model that I described earlier in the show, what we found was that like 85 or 90% of the profits over a long period of time came from the long sided trades, right? Confirming completely what you said. I have my own thesis as to why that is, but I would love to hear why you think that trend following tends to be much more profitable from the long side. And the follow-up question is, of course, always from investors when they hear this fact that, okay, so why do you trade shorts in the first place?
2: Well, yeah, I think that you trade shorts just because you don't know the direction of the markets. Is is, is that you say that we don't have a bias? Is that it? now there could be a natural bias for equities because they're tied to long-term growth, but other commodities, which we just, uh, for example, commodities which we talked about logistics, supply shocks, inventory, they don't have the same kind of bias that you would have that's tied to long-term growth and long-term uh, term earnings. Same might apply to, to bonds. So, so I think, but you want to have that diversification. You want to have the ability to, and the opportunity to be able to trade on the short side. Now, in general, what you find is, is that dislocations in markets that would lead to short positioning are usually shorter and more violent. And so in general, I think that they're harder to trade because if let's say you're a longer term trend follower, is that you could have situations where, you know, you have this violent change, you get into it a little bit later, and then it reverses quickly. And then what you find is you're, uh, you might be in a short position too long. And so I think that it, it requires a little bit acceptance that these markets are a little bit different, but still also accept that it increases your set of opportunities.
1: So I want to try my thesis also on you because it might tie into something we are going to talk about, which is behavioral finance. So I've always felt that looking at charts, that tops took longer to form; they were kind of you know lengthy, while bottoms, and we can just think of last year, twenty third of March. We can think of 6th of March, uh, two thousand and nine. They're kind of like a one day event. So for me, I've always felt that trend-following models have had less time to essentially reverse, right? We know time, it's not just price, it's really time and price that makes uh, up a trend-following system. So for me, that's been kind of a visual observation. Then if we take it a step further and we start talking about behavioral finance and behavioral human behavior, I wonder also if you could argue that when people are euphoric and, and in this kind of mania phase that we see right now, maybe it does take longer to destroy that positivity in people. Maybe we are more prone to be positive. But then when fear comes along and we're really seeing these sell-offs and and crises, etc., etc., then, and of course, we see the markets move down probably more quickly. But then on the other hand, that fear can be maybe quicker erased by, for example, a central bank coming in saying, don't worry, guys. I'm gonna fix this, or whatever it m- makes people suddenly go from a state of fear to a state of, say, less fear. I don't know what I'm talking about here. I've never studied human behavior, but what what are your thoughts?
2: Well, uh, you know, I think that a a good economist is a, and would like to start let's assume a world of rationality and can if if let's try to see if we can explain phenomena that in a rational way, and then afterwards, we can add in and sort of uh, talk about irrationality or behavioral frictions. That's no different than if you're a physicist. First, you start with there's no friction when we sort of do our problems. Uh, we we sort of not talk about gravity initially when we do our uh, frictions in physics. And then we sort of add in all of these special cases. So let's take take the case of markets are hit with some kind of shock. Generally, what we find in a lot of data is is that markets will underreact to good news and overreact to bad news. Okay, and you say like, well, if and a good news, would you say they underreact because if I'm already holding a stock, or if I'm holding my position and there's good news out, I'm not going to sell it. Is is it now you, abstracting from you know sort of selling uh, winners and or selling losers and in- looking at the behavioral issues, usually you're now going to have to say for me to to get rid of my stock after good news enters the markets, I'm going to have to have someone pay me a premium to do that. So what you're going to see that there is going to be uh, and people are going to have to want to enter into the market, they're going to have to pay a higher price and the market is then going to trend up and it may underreact to the full extent of the news that's coming in. On the other hand, if let's say there's bad news, now uh, I'm holding a stock, what am I going to do? I got to now convince somebody to buy something in a bad news environment. And if I want liquidity, I'm going to have to pay someone a premium to be able to do that. So I'm going to have to overreact to some news in bad news situations because now I got to pay someone to take it off my hands. So so consequently, you're going to see an overreaction to bad news. And so consequently is this is that this gets accentuated by behavioral issues but in general that there's rational reasons for why there could be more violent and over uh overreactions in the downside relative to good news information where there's going to be a slower reaction on the upside doesn't occur all the time but there are some rational explanations for why you could get this uh, more violent and more uh stronger volatility in down markets
1: sure Which may be a good segue because you wrote a point, and I don't know where you're going to go with this, so I'm always interested. You wrote a point called Behavioral Finance Writings as Self-Help Books.
2: <laughs> well, you know, I, I've actually sort of said this is that you start the new year, you say to say, "Well, I, I've got my new uh, my new rules for the year. You know, this is I, I'm going to exercise more. I'm going to eat right. This, this is I, I'm going to you know, read some self help books to try to become a better person. This, this is and when you think about some of the behavioral finance books that we've uh, and research, it's a form of self help. This is a here are all the bad things you do. Let me tell you about this. And now we're going to tell you how to stop doing that. And uh, whether it's be uh, hanging on to your losers, whether you over, uh, whether you have a disposition effect. So we could go through all of the different biases that we have. So we could we could list them all out. So it's no different than all the bad th- habits you have. You read a self-help book and it says, that, here's what you need to do. Let's first identify your bad habits and stop doing them. And You read the article and you sort of say, oh, that makes a lot of sense. And you sort of say, I'm going to change my behavior. And then we'll sort of say two, three months later, you're back to your old ways. It's, they're ingrained in your mind. And what it always tells me is, is, is that the, the big advantage of systematic investing is the fact that we can use rules to lock in our behavior so we don't have the problem of the self-help book that we sort of backslide on bad behavior. We could use the rules to sort of impose it upon ourselves. So we don't backslide into old habits that we had before.
1: Yeah. And and actually, it's interesting because a couple of years ago, maybe, yeah, maybe probably a couple of years ago, I interviewed... Dr. Daniel Crosby on the podcast and I invite everyone and suggest everyone go back and listen to those episodes because that's exactly what we discussed. But of course, what I really like about his book, The Behavioral Investor, is the fact that what he, I think, starts out by saying is don't have goals, have rules. Because if you want to go, if you want to be healthier, the goal is fine to have, but the, the way to get it is to have a rule saying go to the gym every day or eat don't eat uh, pizza every day or whatever it might be. So it's actually the rule that makes it. And it also ties into the conversation I had with Richard Dennis along with Jerry, where Richard said that everybody knows the slogan, the trend is your friend, but what they forget is that it's the rules that is the guardian angel. Right. And I think that's so important and something that people don't focus on enough. And I do think, and maybe it ties into where we are going later on about AI. I'm not entirely sure, but I do think that there is, and I have no evidence of this, but I do feel that there is a huge adoption going on, generally speaking, with some kind of process-oriented or systematic type investment process compared to where we were 10 or 20 or 30 years ago, even if trend followers probably were the first to have a quote-unquote systematic approach to investing. We know other strategies have come along since then, value and stuff like that and other types of quants. But before we go to that, because I know you had a a kind of a point you wanted to to, um, make about AI, you also made, and this is where I have to really be careful with how I pronounce it, but you had a point called FOMO versus (laughs) <laughs> fear of overvalue. I, I um, hope I got it well, right.
2: Well, when we were talking about GameStop, stop. I was t- thinking about like the the big problem with a lot of investors right now, and all the retail investors is, is we call FOMO, fear of missing out. And so, so a lot of people were investing. They open up their small accounts. They're still right now. They're saying it's like, oh, stock market is still going up. Fear of missing out. And, and I say, well. I'm not having a fear of missing out. I, 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 I'm fear of overvaluation in the stock market. And that's what my biggest time, oh, fear of overvaluation up until recently, the bond market. So I said, "said well, if I'm not a FOMO guy, what, what's a different way to view this? I go, oh, fear of overvaluation. So so I have, I, I'm not a FOMO, but I'm a foof. So f- fear, a foof. fear of
1: overvaluation. Yeah. Oh, that, that reminds me of FUCA. Oh, yes.
2: VUCA, well, this is something I've been talking about for 10 years, and I, I don't know if we have enough time to go through this. But so the U.S. Army College, you know, tried to, they're always training their officers, and they do a great job of trying to sort of like be on the cutting edge of decision science. And so they came up with an acronym to describe battlefield situations and, and how people have to adopt to battlefield situations. And so the acronym they came up with is VUCA. And they said that uh, what uh, VUCA world or environment is volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And when I, I look at this, I say, I said, everything I've been doing for, you know, I don't know how many decades now is trying to fight VUCA. <laughs> you said, I didn't know the word at the time when I started, but, you know, when you think about the, if uh, there's jerry other people on the podcast they talked about it. well part of rules is is that you want to try to sort of deal or handle a vuca environment and so so we got volatility what what are we doing with volatility is is that how do we manage it there's uncertainty because we really don't know what's going to happen next there are things if you say volatility is what has been measured in the past uncertainty is what we cannot measure we cannot put a probability on and then complexity is this is that we're constantly faced with the uh, complexity of the world around us and so one way that a trend follower deals with this is that well i'm going to sort of reduce complexity by only focusing on price other people say it's like no i want to live with the complexity so i'm going to have all these complex models so there are different ways to do it but we're fighting complexity and then finally is ambiguity this is that we have a lot of inform- economic information that has come out this last week, and yet you could have two people on your podcast, and they could sort of look at the same data, and they could have a very rational interpretation of that data and get a very different answer. And that is the essence of ambiguity when you're giving this same set of information, and you can have two different models, both of which seem rational in your thought process, but... Neither of them can both be correct at the same time. Eventually, one of them is going to be right, and one of them is going to be wrong. and <laughs> We don't know which one it is.
1: Yeah.
2: So when you think about from an investor's perspective, what everybody is doing is, is that whether it's a person who's listening to your podcast now, and and he's looking at his personal account, if he's an institutional investor, he's fighting to manage VUCA. mm mm-hmm. So I did it in two minutes or three minutes. So maybe, maybe that gives you an idea of what we're talking about.
1: Well, VUCA may come up in different uh, shades for sure in, <laughs> in our future conversations. Final one. And uh, you refer to this as one of the biggest, if not the biggest uh, issue. And that is how one should consider retooling for AI and the re- revolution that's going on. Right. So talk to me about that.
2: Well, I think that you're able to see me. I don't. Your audience can't see me. So I, I've got um. I've got a little bit of a receding hairline. Of my hair is getting grayer. I'm getting a little bit older, and I probably have spent more time talking with people about AI, machine learning, genetic algorithms uh, in the last sort of year or two than I probably have spent any time in terms of retooling. And it has been a true, data science has been a true revolution in the sense of how we sort of think about data, how we talk about, you know, supervised learning versus unsupervised learning, and how do we extract information from data. So I'm, I'm working with some uh, joint venture partners now, and so we're spending a lot of time on genetic algorithms and how to apply that to markets, and they're, they've done some really gr- great work in worth thinking how to monetize this. But the issue comes in is, is, is that people who have been trained a long time ago about thinking about data is, is that you come up with a hypothesis, then you test it. So it's their traditional econometrics. is very different from the way in which you view AI And let you do new data science, which is they're saying, I'm going to let the data talk for itself. I'm going to try to extract information from data without making judgments about what the data should do and say, what is the data actually doing? And I think that you look at the VUCA world, we look at the complexities we're facing, we need different types of machine learning. We need sort of even evolutionary computing, which learns to adapt and adjust and learn from the environment to be able to deal with markets today. Now, this becomes fairly controversial because when you look at trend-following world, there are people who always sort of say, I come up with my models, I fix my models, and I sort of have these set rules. And I say that, Eventually the, you know, my my trend falling models should be stable and then I'll be able to eventually extract profits because behavior is repeated year after year. The data science and the machine learning crowd is probably sort of saying this is that, well, maybe we gotta be we we gotta be more careful on how we extract information and we have to learn from the data and adapt to that because the markets are constantly changing. And so fundamentally, it's a different way of looking at the world. And I think that, but at some point, I think that it's something that you need to understand. And I feel I've, I think that that's what I need to do to be able to adjust in the very difficult VUCA world we live in today.
1: You know, it's fascinating, right? And And of course, I've certainly come across this topic many times. A couple of observations. One, I've never come across an AI driven trend type model that has done better and 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 I think last year the own the own I, I, I listened to a panel of Fonda funds in the summer of last year. And one of the Fonda Funds said, Well, the only manager we had to fire was an AI fund, because clearly it had not learned how to deal with the March 2020. Crisis. So here's my question, and it sounds naive to some extent, but nevertheless, I think a lot of people are thinking this, and that is if AI technology learns from the past, but the future is always different, how do we make money from that, right? There's kind of a disconnect compared to the philosophy of a trend follower saying, yeah, it's always different and it's never going to be perfect. I'm applying rules that have worked over the long run, and the future. Will have some similarities. It's not going to be the same. It's going to have some similarities. How do we? How do you think about that?
2: Well, this is where what you have to really tool up, and this is the challenge: is is that if you're looking at a, a genetic algorithm, it's called the feature engineering. It says like, what are the features you use? What is the training period you look at? So there is no holy grail solution with AI. Where you say, I'm just going to give the data and it's going to miraculously come in with models that are going to be better than currently exist. It takes a lot of work, but it, it's a set of techniques that allow for us to extract more information from the data. But you need to know what to look for. You need to interpret it after the fact and then you need to be able to sort of build a model around it or a system around it. And those are all very difficult and it's no different than, you know, a classic trend follower. It's just that the tools that you're using are different. And those tools can actually be able to help you find some uh, some new relationships that may not have existed before. So, if I trained a system with AI, and I used it for the 2017 or 2016 to 2019 period, and it never had a large drawdown period, or, or it never had a March 2020. Lo and behold, it, it would not be able to, you know, uh, deal with that situation because it never saw it in the past. It never, it never considered that in its training before. And there are ways in which people have looked at this where you could sort of say, look at longer history. We probabilistically look at different regimes. And then we try to say, let's try to focus in on forecasting the regime that we're in. And then being able to say that as the regime changes, we sort of change our sensitivity that we say we're in a new world. So now what we've got to do is we've got to change our weights and look at the world differently and how we sort of look at the markets and the model changes because we're saying probabilistically we're in a different regime. So there are complexities.
1: That I agree with, yeah. That I think is actually probably the future is if you can distinguish between different regimes and have some kind of impact on your model based on that. That I truly believe in.
2: And that's in some senses is that We'll say that if you look at major themes of how people have looked at data, I think that uh, regime change has been significant, and a lot of it is done with looking at probabil- probabilistic model and logistic models, uh, and looking at the business cycle, sort of try to forecast business cycles and recessions. I think some of the, a lot of interesting work was looking at the shape of the curve to say is it can can it forecast whether there's a recession, and so it can can it look at this in a probabilistic sense. And that's what we need to do across all markets is is that how do we sort of know what regime we're in? Now, a big adage I always talk about is this, is that before we can know about the future, we've got to know the regime we're in right now. (laughs) And that in itself is a difficult problem. So if you think that we're... Early in the business cycle, because we're going to have a boom, you're going to behave very differently than if you say, like, okay, look, we're on the precipice of another global recession. So, knowing where you are today is as difficult as figuring out where you'll be tomorrow. But knowing the regime is is critical, and I think we see this all the time. And you know, with some of the work that I'm looking at with some of my partners, i said, okay, let's just look at what does it mean to be risk on, risk off. Uh, uh, so, uh, we'll call it the row, row problem. So, uh, if we're on a risk on environment, well, then we got to look through whatever we're seeing in the bond world. And we still got to sort of pedal to the metal on equities. If we're sort of switching to a risk-off environment, well, then you could say like, okay, now I've got to sort of, you know, increase my cash exposure. I've got to reduce my risky assets. My behavior should got to be different, and how we sort of, uh, I'm not going to be buying dips as much if, if let's say I'm in a risk-off environment because the dips are going to get dippier. They're going to get they're going to they're going to move further down. If I'm a risk on environment and I have a dip, I got to say, I got to put more chips on the table because it's t- I got to add to my positions. So, regime analysis is critical to the good investor, systematic investor today.
1: Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that, Mark. I think, and I think there are different ways you can do that. Certainly, also within trend following, and and thanks for inventing a new word, dipier. I never come <laughs> across that in in the dictionary, but now we have it. Now, time is running quick when you're having fun, as they say. So let's turn to a question we got in from um, Clemen. First, Plamen writes, very kindly, let me start by saying thank you very much for your amazing podcast series. For those of us who dream about working in the CTA industry, your wonderful podcast is a window providing unparalleled insights to the CTA world. Well, we certainly appreciate your comments there. Now, I'm reaching out with two questions for the next week's episode. Is there a central, and you're the perfect guest to have on for this actually, Mark, so is there a central body slash organization that studies and publishes data about the CTA industry similarly to the UK, the investment association that represents the broader asset management industry? Where would you send Clyman uh.
2: For a systematic CFA, there is no single organization. This is, but right. Uh, but there are a few, yeah.
1: are a couple of different yeah. ones. Right? And,
2: and I think that the, the great places, you know, I've I have connections with the people at Kaya, which is, a, you know, the Alternative Investment Association. Their designation is great, for those who are in the alternative investment area, as opposed to the CFA. I also sort of connected with people at the CFA, and both are are great ways to be able to. If you look at their websites, they have a tremendous amount of information. And uh, so the Kaya website, and they're all about Alpha, is tremendous amount of information, a tremendous amount of places where you can learn about all alternative investments. And I think it's a great place to start uh, for any of his analysis.
1: Yeah, and also I would add to that that although the uh, organization changed from being the Managed Futures Association back in the day to the Managed Funds Association, I think the MFA probably does have some uh, information because your follow-up question is if there isn't anybody, then where do you go as a good source for uh, information by like AUM, competitive landscape, trends on the CTA industry? So I would say those pages, I also think the CME group does... Have some good papers on that, absolutely. And of course, Barkley Hedge, our friend Saul Waxman, he's got obviously he tracks the size of the CTA industry, and I'm pretty sure it's free to sign up for some of the information where you can get a better feel. And of course, the best source of all times will be uh, listening to Top Traders Unplugged. Right. So, uh, which you're already <laughs> doing, planning. So, I think you're way ahead of of most people in the world in terms of that. So, but we appreciate your questions. And of course, we appreciate your kind words. He also actually, he does have another question I just see now. Can you please speak about the research process you follow and how you generate new trade ideas? Why don't you speak a little bit from your experience, Mark? And then I'll add to that, or maybe there's nothing to add to it, so to speak.
2: Well, I guess I'd sort of say that our research process and I think the research process of any good trend follower is probably no different than that of a good scientist. This is that you come up with a hypothesis, you test it, and then you sort of go through uh, a rigorous process of trying to punch holes into why it shouldn't work or uh, or how does it compare against existing thesis or ideas. And there's a We'll call it a creative destruction process. Is is that there's a high threshold, but you're constantly sort of saying, "Well, what you know is a new piece of data. Is is that going to give me some value added? Well, you know, let's just test it. How does it test against the, you know my existing system? Is it is it worth the extra effort to do it? So it it just follows a scientific method, and I think that uh, uh, most of the good researchers in finance would be good researchers in any discipline because they have that discipline and how they approach uh, hypothesis, testing, and review of of new ideas.
1: Yeah, and also I would just say, uh, certainly speaking from um, experience on our side, and that is, I mean, inspiration to new ideas can come from many different sources, and as you know, Trend following is is kind of trial and terror, meaning you have to find all the things that doesn't work before you find the things that work. Probably similar to if you're a researcher, right? I'm sure you go through a few iterations before you find the right vaccine or whatever it might be. So, so yeah, absolutely. Now, I just want uh, to also mention that we've had some great reviews recently, but not enough, though. But we had some great reviews of the podcast, which I highly appreciate. And I want to just acknowledge Farmboy33 from Canada. I thought and and Morden from Denmark. We've had one from the United States, but I um can't really pronounce the usual name you're using. We had another one from the States from SS 2020 and also from King Christen from Germany. And the God's truth from the United Kingdom. Well, that's perfect if 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 he's really listening <laughs> in and uh, and think it's good stuff that we're doing. So that I'm not going to argue with that. But seriously, we need more reviews because it helps the algorithm in iTunes. So if you wouldn't mind, please go to um, either toptradersonplug.com forward slash review because there you have all the information you need, or just go to iTunes if you have your Or even if you're not listening to that, normally you can leave a rating and review in iTunes and it really does help. There's a lot of competition you might not know about this podcasting stuff. So anything you can do to help us reach more people would be fantastic. I'm going to do a quick review of the performance, uh, which is, of course, the performance for the month of February. Although as always these numbers are as of Thursday and Friday was kind of a healthy down day for trend followers and CTA so the numbers are not going to be as great as I'm going to re- uh, read out now so just keep that in mind we'll know in a couple of days what the real numbers are but anyways the b top 50 index as of Thursday night was up 5% very strong up almost 4% for the month Oh, sorry, for the year. The SockGen CTA index up a little bit more than 5% and almost up the same for the year, about 3.9%. SockGen trend index, very strong as of Thursday, up 6.78% and up 6% for the year. SockGen short-term trade index also having a great month, up 3.5%, up one8 for the year. My own trend barometer finished at a reading of 57. Those of you who follow it, it's free on the website. You would know that that's a good reading that certainly confirms that it's going to be a positive month for for trend followers. Not necessarily a huge month. I think that more depends on how much commodity exposure you've had and position sizing, because those who had those things right may have a very significant month this month, but uh, in general, it's going to be a good month for sure. The SOCGen Multi-Alternative Risk Premier Index, on the other hand, is down 4 bips for the month of February as of Thursday, up still 80 bips for the uh, year. And then MSCI was up to an, uh, 2.45% in February, up one37 for the year. But the World Government Bond Index was down 2.19% for the month. May not sound a lot. It's a lot for this index, I can assure you. So, uh, Keep an eye on that, as we certainly do. Mark, we sometimes finish off, not <laughs> always, we sometimes finish off with sharing a a good research or something, a resource that just was interesting that you've come across. I don't know if you prepared anything. Otherwise, I'm catching you off guard here. But is there anything that you might recommend our listeners dig into?
2: Well, I think the thing that I always look at is is that, when you mentioned about research, is is that being cross-disciplinary so uh read as much a variety of things because you never know when the next idea is coming with so right now i'm reading some work on uh, on architecture my daughter is a architect student, so i'm reading about uh but uh, modernist buildings but thinking about how the creative process works and i think that it applies to finance how do you be creative how do you think out of the box so just read a lot of different things.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's great advice. And uh, by the way, I also love some of these programs where they see these interesting buildings being uh, put up. And uh, it's 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 fun to watch that uh, process. From my part, it has to be the latest memo from Howard Marks, where he talks about how we can't predict the future, but we can prepare for it which of course what we try to get investors to do by including a reasonable allocation to trend following. But I think he makes so many really logical and pragmatic points every time he writes. And uh, I, I love kind of the title, even though he didn't come up with it. I think he read it in a book, How You Can't Predict But You Can Prepare. And I think that is exactly what investors should be doing. And I hope, of course, all of you listening today has already prepared your portfolios. Next week, we have a special episode um, because Jerry wanted to join an episode with Rob. And so we're going to make that happen. And so next week, we will have a gentleman-like debate about a few things that Jerry has been waiting to hash out with Rob. I think that's going to be a lot of fun. So make sure you keep your questions coming. You can email them to info at And um, I'll do my best to get them answered as soon as we can. And also, of course, you can always follow all of us on Twitter and you can follow Mark's blog and read some of the interesting stuff that he produces as well. From Mark and me, thanks so much for listening. And we look forward to being back with you next week. In the meantime, be well and stay safe.